Hello and welcome to E3, Energy and Efficiency with Emily. I'm your host, Emily Mottram. This podcast is all about architecture, building science, and female entrepreneurship. So prepare to get nerdy. All right, guys, welcome back to the podcast today. I'm super excited to have Doug Horgan on. Maybe you caught him on BSN Beer recently, so... I was excited after he was on and I asked him to come on the podcast and expand a little bit more and his company BOA. I'm hoping that maybe you can introduce yourself, Doug, tell us a little bit more about you and your company and uh, we'll go from there. Okay. Yeah. I'm really excited to be on the podcast. I've been a, been a fan. Uh, And of course I I met you through BS and beer. So that's a, that's a great, great little group. It's, um, it's a shame we can't meet in person, but uh, I've, it's been a great benefit for me to be able to, join you guys uh, every week. So that's good. Um, yeah, I'm a, I'm a contractor. Uh, we're in the Washington, D.C. area. We have an office in town and an office out in the country nearby. Uh, we do very high-end, um, expensive stuff, large projects, and it's a mix of custom homes and, and renovations. And we do, we do a lot of condo renovations, house renovations, big freestanding houses in the exurbs and suburbs and townhouses and, and stuff in town, whatever, whatever folks need. Um, so, uh, and, and I've been with the company for 30 years, actually 31 years this week. Uh, it's a, it's a pretty good place to work. Uh, Congratulations. Yeah, That's you. exciting. Uh, I mean, I've been an owner for 20 years. It's, it's a, it's a good group. Um, great, great bunch of folks with a really good philosophies. Um, you know, it's, it used to be that a, a company that was professional and ethical was very unusual. Uh, I've been somewhat gratified to see that that there there are a lot of companies like that around now who who work for um, you know in the remodeling space and custom home space. Um, of course, that's not universal, but it does seem like the levels have been rising as time goes on, which is good. Um, and my main job these days is handling uh, quality and training for our company. Uh, I also, because I've, I've been around for so long and I, I think because I've been in a place where I could see a ton of problems, I have ended up knowing a lot about what goes wrong in residences. So I, I do play a role when we have weird problems or complicated problems. I often get called in to fix them and uh, I really enjoy that too. So that works out well, but uh, it's, it's, I, we're, we're an unusual company because we're because of our size there's nothing nothing super unusual about about it other than that but <clears throat> there's 80 of us in the company and we're we always have folks moving out of town with their spouses or, or you know there's a certain amount of, of turnover so we have a constant need to bring people up to speed we most of our work is done to a level higher than the local market usually supports. So we're any new subcontractor needs to be trained on how to do things. Um, a lot of them don't, um, don't know what the code is. A lot of them don't know that we've seen, you know, product X fail multiple times and we're not, we don't use that one. So I get to do a lot of that stuff and that, that, that I is, do every day. Yeah, that is really cool. Um, I don't know of too many building companies that are 80 people that 
sounds so huge to me. Um, you're in an area that I actually moved to right after I finished architecture school. Um, I worked for Barnes Vance in, uh, they had an office in DC and an office in Middleburg, which is kind of right through your territory. Yeah. I think you're actually familiar the, the with Middleburg them. Office, um, yeah, it was across the street from our Middleburg office. So yeah. Oh, and, I, that's... and I did a lunch and learn at the DC office on green remodeling like 15 years ago. Wow, that's it. so exciting. Uh, the you know same world, different time period. Uh, just just barely missing uh, paths. And so, when you said that you have a lot of people moving in and out, that was one of the things that stuck with me in that area. Was it did seem somewhat transient? Is that a lot of people who you know I was in my early twenties and I moved to that area and then. I worked for a couple of years, got experience, and then said, okay, let's move closer to one of our sets of parents mm -hmm. or the other, and we moved to Maine. Gotcha. Um, but while I was there and I was working in Middleburg, um, the project or the manager or owner uh, that was out in the Middleburg office uh, and I decided to take the lead exam together. And that's kind of what got me started in the certification processes, I guess you would say. Right. Um, my thesis at Penn State had a lot to do with consumerism and upcycling and what we could do with um, a lot of these old steel mills and oh, wow. uh, labor force of people who have these kind of cool skills that could do things with metal that might be outside of the realm of, you know, just, you know, could we make art out of things that you can't reuse? All kinds of kind of, you know, I mean, it was theoretical, it was architecture school, but kind of a cool <laughs> idea. So I, I think I've always been, uh low level, even interested in building science. I mean, my grandfather had a solar panel on his roof oh, and awesome. I grew up in a farm family. So I technically grew up farm to table before that was a thing. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think I've just always had an interest in it. But when I was in DC, I took the lead exam and that was kind of where I started off on my certification program. Oh. So I know you've done a lot of training, a lot of teaching. What's your thought process on training programs, which ones, where to start, is it even worthwhile? Because that's a question I get asked a lot. Um, people who contact me because they listen to the podcast mm -hmm. or they want to get more building science, like how do I get into this? And they want to know, like, do they just jump into a training program? Do they start somewhere else? So with all of your years of experience, what, where do you start? Those are great questions. I guess, um, and I, I don't have, I don't think there's one answer. I'm positive there isn't one answer. I know, um, True. you know, one of the things that I found the most interesting in, in my direct work, particularly with, uh, with a lot of our carpenters and subcontractors is, um, you, you can't assign reading. Uh, a lot of people are not effective learners from written material, which is fine. Um, a lot of these people are better carpenters than I'll ever be. And they're as smart as I am. They just don't, do reading. Um, so it's, uh, it's finding ways that work um, for you if you're interested in learning stuff. And having said that, from a contractor's perspective, I think the, the single most valuable thing I ever did was a week-long BPI training. Uh, it was, you know, building analyst and envelope, whatever they called it back in the day. Um, back and, in the day yeah, and, I did that too <laughs> exactly exactly right I heard, I heard you talking about uh, you did a lot of energy audits didn't you um, I did a lot of energy audits back in 2009 when the market was really bad mm -hmm. that was the opportunity when I said okay I know a little bit about building science and I want to know how to be a 
better architect and do better building science. And there was a bunch of RO money coming into a lot of states at the time to help people offset the costs of making efficiency improvements. And so I did a lot of energy audits for a couple of years and a lot less architecture. And the best experience for me, I'm a reader. I love books. I love to read. But the best experience for me in building science was um, when I first started, I followed another woman around who was my boss for three months before I was allowed to do an audit by myself. And I learned so much with hands-on training, Mm -hmm. just walking around and hanging out with her for a while. So, Yeah, that sounds like a terrific experience. I mean, I actually did a bunch of energy audits uh, on weekends during the recession myself. and uh, it was actually really useful. I mean, I've been in 500 houses looking at their energy from, from an energy perspective, and it actually is a great way to learn stuff uh, about the general conditions of things. Um, so, I, you know, I would say that that's one of the things that really got me started with this. But also, um, I just always try to chase down problems. And I, I used to run our, our handyman and warranty team. Well, we call it handyman. Now it's handy person, which is a lot better. Um, we, so I used, I, at first I was the handy person and warranty team. And then, um, by the time 10 years went by where there were eight of us and we were grossing a million dollars a year, it was like a real business, but we, we would get, uh, hundreds and hundreds of things asked of us every year. And some of them were kind of interesting and complicated and we got to, you know, we had to fix these things. We had to figure them out and the, the internet, uh, the advent of the internet. So. I definitely started by checking books out of the library, but by the time the internet rolled around, um, there was so much great stuff on there. Building Science Corporation website is such a great education. Um, there's, uh, you know, I, I spent a lot of time on the Journal of Light Construction forums, which has really changed over the years. It used to be a very, very active group, and it's uh, it's not so much anymore. I think the whole forums concept has kind of gone by the wayside in certain regards, but. Uh, that that was a great community to learn from. So uh, I think just figuring out the things that are going on on your projects as they go along is a pretty good way to self-educate if you can stand to stare at a screen and Google stuff uh, or use a different search engine that it doesn't track you as much as your preference might be. I think what you're saying there too, though, and the takeaway that I got from that was that you had a maintenance, or I'm assuming still have a, you know, maintenance and ongoing uh, department that probably allows you to also help for future builds kind of like, Hey, we figured this out and it was, you know, it was a problem with our tape here, or it was like, we tried this method on this project and, and it didn't go well. So like, we need to make sure that we don't do that. And I think as an architect, that's one of the downsides of not being on the construction site, you know, and I tried to stay involved with my clients, you know, even afterwards to hear how things are going, because sometimes we don't hear if, you know, if the builder built something, so say I gave you a project and you went out and built it, if I don't hear from you that it was, you know, difficult to build or something, then, then I don't know. And I keep repeating this bad detail or, or something. Yeah. And so how it's probably have, the same. Like, how would I have learned as a carpenter? Um, I, you know, I learned, I learned stuff by reading magazines and books and on the internet, but in terms of the work that I did and whether it held up or not, I didn't learn that because 
I, I wasn't directly involved in our repairs. And then once I started yeah. doing that, it was really, it was only a year or two. And I thought, wow, I'm, I'm just doing so much of this wrong or I was, and I just didn't know. And, uh, yeah, I learned a ton from seeing things go wrong for 10 years. And, and that's actually what happened at, at a certain point we said, Hey, we started doing educational stuff and, and having get togethers for our site supervisors and, and a few other people in the company, the managers and saying, Hey, you know, we, we would usually review a trade and how they worked. And then we would talk about things that had gone wrong recently and how to, how to avoid those. Um, and sometimes those were the same thing. Uh, I think we've talked about <laughs> roofs and tile uh, showers, you know, 15 times in the, in the last 20 years. So um, as a matter of fact, uh, we even have, we've, we, we started having quarterly meetings with um, large parts of our company where we would, would do this stuff and we videoed a bunch of them. They're on our YouTube channel. Uh, so if you, if you search about oh, on YouTube, you can find some of those there. That's a great resource. Well, it's a, it's a resource. It, well, and it's an interesting like hour, an hour long. They're not, they're not a quick hit. Um, no, but I think stuff. the stuff that you're doing with your company, which is really great for your company. Like a lot of times when you do lunch and learn, so I'm not, you, you presented a lunch and learn on how to do some, some green building or stuff, but as the architect, I sort of feel like a lunch and learn where you present some of the building failures could have been a huge thing for, for, especially for young architects, you know, the people who are just kind of coming into it, who might be doing some of the detail work and the drawing set, who, who don't know better, don't know as much about construction detailing mm -hmm. yet. Mm -hmm. And, and I mean, hopefully somebody in their office is checking or verifying some of those stuff, some of that stuff, but having that and being able to learn, like I, often we'll send people to Christine's Building Science right. Fight Club on yeah. Instagram because she does small snippets of a potentially big building failure issue, mm -hmm. which is great learning yeah. for, you know, and like you said, some people don't read or, you know, so you get home at the end of the day, you're too tired, even if you do like to read, mm -hmm. or um, I just recorded a podcast with Casey Gray and mm -hmm. he said, you know, he's never read a building science book because that's what he does during the day. Oh, wow. So when he wants to read at night, he wants to read something that's not related to what he's done during the day. And that makes a lot of sense to me mm -hmm. because if you do this all day long, then having to read about work stuff mm -hmm. just feels like more work. I agree. And some things I'm just interested in. I've read plenty of building science books, kind of nerdy, really into the science part. Um, so I, I find it interesting, but I can, I also like to read things that are not building science, architecture, or business related so that, you know. Yeah. I mean, you can, there's only so much of it you can handle. Uh, yeah, but I agree. I've been blessed or cursed or I'm not sure what, but I can, I can handle a lot. Like I'm so into this stuff. It really gets me excited all day long. Um, now that I don't work tools on all weekend long, I get my tools out and do stuff. <laughs> I'm still buying new tools. I'm such an idiot. Anyway, <laughs> um, yeah, well, so, uh, yeah, it's exactly as you were saying. Um, once you start seeing what happens when things go wrong, you realize that it's important that everyone in the organization know about that as well. So we, that's, that's when I, my personal role took more of a turn toward training and, and um, kind of quality management. Um, 
I, I almost don't like to use the word quality because it has this kind of internal affairs sound to it where you <laughs> yeah. know, the, you're getting caught doing something wrong. And we try, we try not to do that. Uh, we provide a ton of resources and specific training programs for folks at the beginning when they join us. Uh, every project manager, uh, which is what we call our site supervisors, has a, a three ring binder that's like four inches thick with all the a bunch of manuals and resources and stuff. Um, so it's, it's not trying to catch stuff after it's gone wrong. It's trying to start off on the right foot. Uh, we have trade standards, which are also accessible online. Um, if you just Google BOA trade standards, you'll find it. And, um, particularly with new subcontractors or even just new crews for existing subcontractors, we like to review those and how they apply to a given job site before they start. And, you know, we, we think that on a steep slope roof that there's four or five things that we want done a particular way that ha half the roofers already do most of them, but not all do all of them. And it's just great to get out there and review that with them. I mean, in particular, even though ostensibly that there's a contractual obligation to follow our trade standard, usually the field people don't know that and haven't seen it. So how would they, right? We, we right. Who's reading that binder? it's better for you to be on site right. and just go over the high points. I talk about that in the whole design process. I like to have a builder on board during the design process oh, yeah. because then everybody knows what's the most important metric going on. And you've kind of all bought into this idea of what you're doing. Somebody said on BS and beer a couple of weeks ago that they have one person who's whose job it is to make sure you meet the blower door number at the end. They're like the air oh, yeah, tightness yeah, yeah. specialist yeah. or something. And so they, yeah. they have to, the one person on the crew is then just making sure like, did that get caught? Did that get taped? Yeah. Did that get, you know, and that person has bought into it, mm -hmm. but I'm starting another project where um, the client has an allergy and so she wants to talk to all of the subcontractors beforehand to just kind of reiterate, this is why we're doing things a little bit different here wow. so that everybody kind of has that in the back of their mind as we're building. Like, I realize some of these things might seem kind of weird and you would lean towards like, well, we've done this and this would be easier, but oh yeah, wait, hold on a second. Somebody said, we're doing this for X, Y, Z reason. And I thought that was really good that having that kickoff meeting that covers, you know, yeah. like with the roofer covers those five things you want to see happen. And maybe they do all of them, but it doesn't hurt to reiterate that to everyone in the field team because the owner of the business might be like, we always do it that way. But if they're not the person that's, you know, kind of out there. Right. Well, in particular, there's a lot of trades around here where there's a lot of turnover and there's a lot of piecework crews and mm -hmm. it's, it's a, uh, it, it bears constant repeating. It's just much easier to handle that way. So, I mean, that's our philosophy of quality management, if you will, is to be in the field with the people with their tools on and do mock-ups and do the first window and do the, do the uh, drip edge on the roof with the mm -hmm. roofers. Um, and, uh, you know, as long as they speak English or Spanish, it's okay. We ha we've had a bunch of Hungarian roofers and uh, oh. watching me try to speak Spanish to the one Hungarian roofer who lived in Spain for a while, that was pretty funny. Like, <laughs> there was a lot of drawing and gesticulation, I would just say that. But anyway, it's, uh, 
yeah, I, I do think that whatever you write down, it, it can't hurt to write stuff down, but that's not how you get stuff to happen. It really has to be out in the field. And I think that's why, you know, pe people who know what they're doing in construction are so valuable. Uh, people who care and explaining the why of why we're doing this and the principles behind it so that it can be applied at the weird corner uh, are really important. You know, you can, you can show someone a way to do something, but that's nowhere near as useful as why and what's behind it. Yeah, I think talking about the why we do something for for any reason, you know, why we build differently in building science, you know, why you do different things for durability reasons. Um, I had one contractor say to me, there's never enough time to do it right the first time, but there's always enough time and money to fix it afterwards. And it's like, Sometimes it feels so stressful to take those extra 10, 15 hour to, to go over it. But then when you remember that it's going to take you eight hours to fix it, if it's yeah. not right the first time, then you go, oh yeah, wait, this, this is well worth the time and the investment. That's true. To, that's true. To yeah, do I it. Think that's, that, those are some of my, I would actually say some of my personal failures on the job site is because uh, I get really jazzed about not having to fix stuff. Having fixed stuff, I'm so I can be I can be very committed to things that other people are smart enough to be more relaxed about. I don't know. Well, it sounds like you spent ten years fixing other people's things. Oh, and so my own, my own. yeah. And I, I mean, this is the first thing I say at every meeting. Like, there's I'm not sure there's a mistake in here I didn't make. Uh, if there is, it right. was just luck. Uh, right. But now I know better. Yeah. And so you spent 10 years going through and fixing the things that didn't go quite right. So it makes you take an extra step and go, no, we're going to take time to do this right the first time. You know, we're going to hopefully make, and it doesn't mean you won't make any mistakes ever. There's still going to oh, yeah. be a team of people who have to oh, fix things. I mean, it, right. Every week I make mistakes. Every week. And as, as, you know, well, especially with turnover, new people, but also as technology changes and we're doing something different, mm -hmm. what might seem like a great idea at the time may turn out not to be such yeah. a great idea yeah. after a certain amount of time. I've, I've turned so conservative about new stuff. I mean, I've just watched, you know, product after product arrive and fail, arrive and fail, arrive and fail. I, I, I now I just say, hey, let's let someone else find out if that works or not you know call me in five years do you think we're going to go back to you know like the whole um organic farming or whatever uh or um people always say that the less number of ingredients in your food the more likely it's good for you are we getting there with the building industry like the less number of things that are in this product I, maybe the better it is <laughs> i think there's something to that on some levels but I mean, first of all, no, I don't think that um, there's reasons why yeah. we've made buildings more complex. Uh, sure. And I, I do think there, I, I think it, um, you have to be very wary of the level of, of, compl of complexity by itself. Uh, and and uh, this has been very hard for me. I love complexity. I, the more crazy something is and the longer the manual, the more excited I am to figure it out. <laughs> so I, that has led me to make a number of mistakes, particularly as it relates to working with other people where I'm just not afraid of a system that is dumb, 
because I can, I think I can handle it. And some, you know, it's just dumb. It just induces mistakes, but I don't, you know, I don't know. I don't think we're at that point yet. Do you? I don't think we are. And I don't think we'll ever be at that point. And I think that there is always some benefit to some really complicated things that make some other not complicated things even better. Yeah. And that we might have to get super complicated with low carbon building materials to make that work. And that's somewhere that I think that we might be going because it might be important to get out of some of the chemical based ones. But you still need some of these chemical-based products mm. to make carbon-based products work. So so I think there's a push and a pull, and I think moving away from making everything super complicated might be a good idea. Mm. But, it, so, but I think that just goes back to the awareness and the taking the time. It's like, how can I do this? Or how can I use this? Or how can I be more efficient with this? Right. And is efficiency time and cost more important than you know longevity and carbon and uh, you know there we're making our buildings more complex but we also the thought process behind it i think has to be more complex too like we have to take more time to think about it yeah and then decide which I think I might be like you. I don't know if I like to read about super complicated things, but I like complicated things. Yeah. I like <laughs> I like the idea of building science, which is more complicated than just, you know, putting together a couple of sticks and putting a building up. You know, you're thinking about both efficiency, durability, carbon drawdown, like it, there's there's so many things that that's exciting to me. That's the future of architecture and so yeah. I you know, I kind of like that, but yeah. Um, it, it's, I'm excited about it. That's part of why I do BS and beer. It's part of why I do the podcast, but you know, where do you start with education on that? Like I, I started with, uh, I took the lead exam in 2006 mm-hmm. when I think that it was only NC. Mm-hmm. I don't think there were any other varieties, which meant that it wasn't super practical for residential, which was pretty much what I was doing. Um, (laughs) And then, then I did the state energy auditing for Maine and then I did BPI and then I did hers. I did the ResNet hers. And then I did passive house. I'm trying to think if I missed anything in there because I like getting even deeper into the weeds Uh and finding out. And all of them are, are different. Uh Like I would say that hers is much easier to apply to new construction than it is to existing construction. I think that passive house is really great on their energy portions and the super insulated structures, but they don't care as much about products and materials. Lead was good with products and materials and local resources. Mm -hmm. But for a long, like when I took it, division eight, which was the efficiency of the structure was like, you didn't even have to do that category. Right. <laughs> like, and so they got a lot of flack because they were trying to build better buildings, but they were, some of them were energy hogs. Yeah. Uh, because, I think that criticism was perfectly legitimate. Although yeah, I also think if, if the, you know, the, the answer to that is lead was designed to turn a super tanker of an industry and, and you needed to start somewhere and right. they picked a spot and, and all the certification it's, overall it's worked reasonably well. 
I think all the certification programs to have merit, you know, if yeah. you're, if you don't know where to start following a prescriptive path, like energy star has kind of a prescriptive path lead had lead has, uh, you know, points and, um, living building challenge, which is, I, w I wish we could all do living building challenge, but it's so incredibly expensive to, to do that mm -hmm. is, you know, they've got pedals and certain, and some of them might be more applicable. Like, some of the points for lead and living building challenge, I think is like being on a bike path and, and public transportation. Well, unless you live in the city of Portland, maybe in Bangor, I'm not really sure. Maine doesn't like so much ha like out in Middleburg, what was the public transportation in Middleburg, you know, like in these rural areas, some of those things don't make practical sense, which I think was what passive house, us was trying to also institute is that there's so many climate zones in the united states that phi german passive house standard does not work in all its whatever across the entire united states yeah so uh yeah it is interesting how the different certification programs have evolved over the years and uh i, I mean i think i feel like things are progressing getting better i actually wanted to say one of the resources that i've started recommending to people is the code book uh it's not well organized uh, there's a lot of stuff in it that you absolutely should skip over it's not going to be climate appropriate or you might not use steel framing or whatever but there's so much of it that's just a, a great distillation of things we've learned will fail and you really have to do this minimum instead um, and it's so much better than it used to be. I mean, when I started, it was like a pamphlet. It was half an inch thick. Uh, <laughs> and now chapter four on wall bracing is thicker than that. So would you recommend that people get the, uh, the annotated version to help them understand the things that they, they don't quite understand? <laughs> That's a great copy. I did buy the, the annotated version in 2012. Uh, but I did not make much use of it. And the few times that I didn't understand something, um, you know, there are there are sections that in the code, particularly when there's new sections, a lot of the time they're just not written very well and yeah. they, they are ambiguous. There's a number of ambiguities still. And uh, the, the annotated version usually doesn't address the ambiguities because, you know, that's like a, a little bit, that, that's what I found. I found, so I did not find that helpful. I actually think you know, it's free online. Um, mm -hmm. Like I said, I'm, if, it's not easy to spend hours staring at the screen, but just going through, um, I don't know, half hour a week, start on chapter three and go from there. Uh, you could do a lot worse. I think that's why when you first start out as a young architect, you often do a lot of code research. And there oh, interesting. is, it's twofold because, um, after a while, people stop enjoying doing code research. <laughs> um, but I think I find that shocking. <laughs> for, the, for the same, you like complicated things. Um, I think for the same reason, uh, it's a great way for you to read and distill and figure out some information yeah. on things that you don't know well. So it's a great place yeah. to start as a young architect to learn some of the things you don't know, you don't know. <laughs> so, yeah, 100%. so, so the code book, great resource for training if you want to read um, and hands-on training, obviously. Hey, and you yeah, have, 
in-house training. Have you uh-huh. been doing a bunch of in-house training with the COVID-19? Like, were you guys shut down? Did you still have some projects where you could be far enough apart that you worked through that? Or, or did you do some more resource and training stuff? No, we kept working. Uh, and in fact, uh, we've now, we've now missed two of the meetings we would have had. Uh, and we haven't, and this is, this is on me. I'm still trying to sort out if there's a way I, I do not think a one hour zoom conference is the way to go. So we haven't done that. Um, we'll, we'll figure out if there's uh, a, a better way. I'm actually, my daughter's a teacher, so she's been sending me a ton of stuff about online teaching resources and methods and uh, that's been really helpful or I don't know we'll see if it's been helpful yeah Um, trying to come up with stuff you have to send them all a package and then you have to do we're gonna build this together here are the tools that you need to bring to this meeting a bunch of popsicle sticks and uh yeah yeah and then you're gonna pour water on it and you're gonna find out where it leaks here (laughs) yeah I mean we've done yeah that's actually you could do worse I mean, um, you could do worse. The, so we, our projects are still ongoing. Uh, I used to go to projects once a week fairly religiously, uh, but I've really toned that down. And I now try to get called into projects at the right time. Um, but there's still a lot of that. And, and I still you know, get the opportunity to see weird problems, which I just love. So I've been on a few of those. Um, finishing up some projects here and there too. You know, I just play a bunch of little roles here and there. Yeah, but we've been lucky. Well, I don't know if we've been lucky. We've been lucky because as far as I know, we've only had one person test positive. Um, Some of our some people who we had recently worked for tested positive and had to tell us not to come do their, you know, their handy person work until they were cleared by the state. The, The prevalence was sort of at a middle level here for a while. It didn't, it didn't hit New York levels or Texas levels, but it was pretty high. So I feel like that was pretty lucky. Yeah. And our well, office can totally shut down. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, do you do more renovation or more new construction? I feel like in some of the new construction where you wouldn't expect to, so aside from your job site workers um, interacting with each other, you know, if you're in a renovation where you might have homeowners, that could be a little bit more difficult. Yeah, I mean, if you want to get into what we've run into, so we, <clears throat> we, we, most of our projects right now are renovations. I think we have a, a couple of new houses we're finishing and one we're starting, but uh, we traditionally run m- way more. You know, we do like 15 renovations at a time in like two or three custom houses. Mm-hmm. So, um, and that's the situation. A lot of our homeowners move out, or some do, or they, you know, they buy a place and we fix it up before they move in. But, um, we do have houses where people are living there. And then some of the jurisdictions got really weird with inspections. Uh, Many of our jurisdictions don't allow third party inspectors. And then they, then they had uh, policies where they weren't allowed to go into occupied homes. And that got a little weird for a while. So we had to connect a bunch of people that we knew from the places that do allow third party inspectors. We had to get, you know, have them mail their certifications over to these places and get approved and all this stuff. So, it's been interesting. And then we had a lot of our projects slowed down quite a bit. Um, many trades wisely would only come work if they were the only trade on site. Uh, if you're doing a kitchen, I think that makes perfect sense. 
Yeah, I think that it extends the timeline a little bit, but it's probably the safest option for, you know, like they're yeah. interacting with only the people on their own crew, you right. know, so they're really minimizing their um, exposure to anyone other than their immediate families. Yeah. And, you know, so, so I, I fully, uh, I, you know, that, that's a great way to do it. The, there are a lot of people here who, who did the same thing, one trade mm -hmm. at a time. One person at a time, if they're smaller crews and they have to share too much and one person has, you know, like um, my husband works for a big company and still had to go to work. So my exposure risk was a little bit higher because he saw a lot of people. So right. I had a tendency wow. to stay in, um, in my office because his store had to be open. So he had to be there and, you know, they were open to the public where, um, I had the opportunity to do zoom meetings, which for architecture works pretty well. I can see how teaching something that's a hands-on skill you know, or, you know, is better face to face would be a lot harder, yeah. especially if you're doing that with your whole company and you have 80 people logged on to it. Um, right. what we've found have, only have phones. Yeah, they only have phones, you're only this big, or what we found, you know, with Zoom in the very beginning when we started the BS and Beer show was that if too many people tried to talk at the same time, you couldn't hear anybody. So it wasn't just like chaos, it like right. cut out the audio totally. And so, you know, it just, <laughs> it, it gets complicated. Like you basically have one or two people that have to monitor the technology in order for, for it to work. And then those people aren't learning whatever you're teaching them either. Yeah. So there are pros and cons to the digital platform, um, which actually leads me into another question uh, for you. That is one of the things that came up in our conversation beforehand was about conferences. So what are your thoughts on conferences in general? And then what's your thought on the fact that a lot of these conferences are going online, at least for this year, because people can't gather? Um, well, I love conferences. I've learned a ton there. Uh, at, at, at a few different conferences. I actually, the intro, there's a lot of things that I love about conferences. One of them is just like with uh, a, a physical magazine, when you're flipping through, you might be looking forward to a particular article, but you'll see a bunch of other stuff along the way. Even sometimes the ads are helpful because you didn't know such and such tool was out or whatever. Um, so it's not, it isn't only the things that you know you want to see, it's also the things you accidentally run into. And that that can happen at a conference that and it but when you're directly searching for something on the internet, you often don't see a lot of other stuff that would turn out to be helpful that you didn't know that you should be looking for. So for me, the conferences are great because uh, I'm not I'm not sure always sure what I should be looking for. And when I go to these things, I see stuff I didn't even know about. Um, you know, and I, I particularly love Journal of Light Construction Live. Uh, Nessie is great. I've only managed to make it up there twice, but what a terrific conference. Um, the National Home Performance Conference, I actually think is the best residential uh, building science conference. It has a ton of extremely smart people. I learned, I mean, I've learned so much over the years. They have a lot of indoor air quality experts on that one. People from the national labs come and give you really hard data. So it's great stuff there. And then about what's what's going to happen this year and next year, I mean, it's a great question. Every conference that I was planning to go to got canceled. Several of them moved online. Um, National Home Performance Conference in particular moved online. And 
Um, that seems to be working reasonably well. They had live sessions for two weeks and there were hundreds and hundreds of people in these sessions, um, which was really interesting. Uh, and then they have a bunch of recorded sessions and, you know, I've been doing, I've been watching a couple of those a week there. It's, it's an interesting way to handle it. I do think I'm getting a little bit of, um, I'm sure this happens to you too, but if you're at your desk for nine or 10 hours and you're on zoom half the time, I find that really exhausting. So some, sometimes the, the virtual conference, it's not as much fun. Yeah. But, I'll be honest, it's tra travel is really expensive and wasteful. So I don't know. What yeah, do you think? Uh, I, I'm kind of in agreement. Um, because I'm an architect and I spend a lot of time on my computer and then all the learning, that uh, there's so much that's great about that because Maine is pretty rural. So like we're not often having a conference here. So we're going to Massachusetts to, mm -hmm. you know, to Nessie or something is the closest or better buildings in Vermont. You know, so you're still driving a couple of hours, you're paying to stay somewhere and, and that's just expensive and it's expensive to do. I wonder if, like you said about the things you didn't know you might want to know, which you hit on a conference, if we'll miss some of that with the online stuff, because you'll kind of zoom in on the stuff that's interesting. You won't accidentally wander into like, oops, I went to the wrong room, but hey, this sounds interesting. Um, and we're also... I think the other thing that you miss is the introduction to people at conferences, mm -hmm. you know, which you, if, if you're just on there learning and they say that like webinars and stuff like that is like a 50% completion rate is like, it's so easy if you're sitting in front of your desk to like all of a sudden you're doing an email and you missed the last 10 minutes of that. And so it's very easy to get distracted. But like you said, at the same time, that never happens to me. So I don't, I don't know. That doesn't happen to you. <laughs> no, I'm joking. That absolutely. I'm like, man, I try so hard to check my email either first thing in the morning at lunchtime at the end of the day, if I'm good. Uh, uh -oh. Sometimes if there's something I really have to get done, I will try not to check my email till lunchtime because mm -hmm. I figure if they really, really need me and it's mm -hmm. like some on fire or something, they'll call me. And then I'll know that they, they need me, but that when you get on your email, all you do all day is put fires out and respond to things instead of being yeah. kind of proactive about that. So I worry that with online conferences, it's easy to get distracted because you're in front of your technology, which, you know, it's sending you text messages and it, like on my computer, technology is great, but I can che check my text message. I can check my, you know, all of my Facebook messages, my email, like, it's so connected to everything that mm -hmm. unless you remember to turn it all off, it's yeah. going to send you notifications about something. And so, but at the same time, if you're only paying to go to the conference and you're not paying to stay or paying to travel or pay, mm -hmm. like you can potentially learn a lot more. You can attend more conferences. You can fill in those CEUs. You can, do right. something beyond those two or three days at a yeah. conference. And I used to miss out. a lot of stuff at conferences too. You know, the bigger ones have seven or 10 concurrent sessions. Mm -hmm. You're always missing one that you wanted to see. Yeah. You're like, Oh, these two things are happening yeah. at the same time. So it's kind of a bummer that I can't, you know, can't go to this. And so, yeah, in that respect, I don't know. It's, I, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that it, that it goes somewhere. 
you know, I do, the more I think about jetting around the country to learn stuff, the less I think that's a great idea. You know? Well, yeah, and environmentally, it's not a great idea for everybody yeah. to fly uh, mm -hmm. wherever the conference is being held that year, you know. Um, I hope it's kind of twofold that they still do some in-person conferences because there are some things that you just can't from can't get from not being in person. Mm -hmm. um, especially I love if they tack on like the passive house builder course to the beginning or the end of a conference where you could take apart a wall system and build a wall system like that hands-on experience, right. I think could bring in people who don't maybe well, always. Of, yeah, JLC live is they, there's actual live carpentry on the show floor. Yeah. And so I think that that's something that, especially like when BS and beer started, people asked us a lot of times like, Oh, can't you video record it? Well, it is chaos at a live BS and beer event. Like it's loud. It's usually in a brewery. Everybody's talking. We're having a debate. Like there's just not a, like, who do you look at? Like what's the camera supposed to be? So like, it's just not a great thing to, um, to video record. And so we have gotten in the past to people who, who want to join us for, for BS and beer and it just, it's not a good fit. So then we started doing it. And originally we started with the open forum and that was kind of complicated with all of that. Who's on the screen, who are you supposed to be looking at? We video this afterwards. The person who's talking isn't even on the screen. Um, and so it was interesting, the new format that we got, which, is super exciting and I really enjoy it. We've had some great guests. We have, there's a lot of, of discussion going on in the chat box, but it's not the same as the in-person events. And so I see the merit of doing both ways because yeah. there's a lot of great content and I'm always learning something new, which like you, if you like complicated things, I love to tune into BS and beer every week. Well, I have to, but I, I like to, I, I enjoy it anyway, because it's like a learning experience every time. And I learn things I didn't know I needed to know, you know, we in, in Maine, we haven't done as much with dehumidification as some other places in the country that have more humid levels. But Mm -hmm. right now is, is when we need dehumidification. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you get on and you guys start talking and I'm like, whoa, oh, wow. That would be, I mean, super practical for like six weeks in the summertime, but like <laughs> things I didn't know, I, I, I need to know this. Mm -hmm. So, um, so it's been really fun for me to learn that way, but you know, I'm excited about the, the, Independence Day party too, because everybody's going to get to be on the screen. We're going to see all the faces of the people who who join us each week and yeah. you know, hear from them, which is why we're doing all of this anyway. So, well, so what do you think about the uh, the technology? And do you think do you think we'll figure out better ways to do this stuff remotely? Um, yeah, I think we will because. I think prior to COVID-19, we were super resistant to doing anything at all. And mm -hmm. then we had to, and then we made some stuff work and some stuff worked really well. And I think that they'll find that some stuff continues to work really well. And gotcha. maybe we aren't going to go back to as much one-on-one -on -one in person as we did before. I was already doing a bunch of Zoom meetings for my own business because a lot of my clients don't live in the state of Maine. And so we had wow. 
already been doing video conferencing. So for me, it was a pretty easy transition. I moved more people into video conferencing. Um, than would... Our design team says the same thing that um, the, the Zoom meetings in some regards can be as or more effective, particularly because you can screen share the plans and you're not all having to run around a table or whatever. There's screen sharing the plans, but also being able to record the session. So that's one mm. of the, it's really hard to record if you're all sitting together in your conference room. Right. So Zoom, we can still see each other, but we can see the, the plans too. We're all looking at the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, you can draw on the screen and do you know some other stuff. And so you can make notes directly as you're doing it, which is really good. Um, but if you're, say you're the project lead, but you're not the person on your design team who's going to do all of the extra drafting. You're drafting, I don't want to say drafting this, or you're not the, the younger project, arch, the intern architect, whoever is on your design team who's doing more of the, the drawing portion of it. They can watch what you recorded and they can see what decisions right. might have been made because no matter how good you do at taking notes, you never quite capture all of the stuff yeah, and like, fair. you know, it in your head, but so it is kind of nice to have the ability to, to capture that gotcha. and be able to share it huh. for yourself or for, you know, somebody else who's part of your design team, who's helping you actually execute the, the drawings or, um, gotcha. So, so for me, it's been excellent. Mm -hmm. um, now, I know you've, you've said a few things about how much you appreciate the building science community on Instagram. What do you think about social in general? So hard. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I love Instagram. Um, one, because people are usually sharing a visual and then describing it which is really good. Mm -hmm. um, I don't like that Instagram doesn't have active links. So if somebody shares something, you can't just kind of click the link to yeah, I find that really irritating. go and learn more. And it's also really hard to share somebody else's thing. Like you have to have another program to repost somebody else's because you might've had some great content and then you have to figure out how to share that great content because other people should know it because you, you know, like if I want to share something that Christine shared, cause I was like, I didn't know that. And other people should know this. It's hard to do that. So that part I don't love. Um, but I like the Instagram community, at least the people that I follow on there. And maybe it's easier to separate that that's work stuff. Mm -hmm. So I follow a lot of building science people and you know, there's a lot of cool. I'm always on there learning something. And, and I love the other builders and architects who share things they've done or things they've learned. And, and that's cool. Um, I struggle with Facebook and I just try to, I feel like as a business now you have to have a Facebook page. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a thing, but I push stuff to it and then kind of just stay out of the whole discussion part of it. Good, uh, a bunch of people mainly folks that uh, used to be on the Journal of Light Construction Forums are on a, a group um, called Building Knowledge, a Facebook group. Oh, and I do follow that. And I like that. 
I like the group aspects because you can kind of curate what's happening in the group aspects. So I belong to a group of architects where they share other things about the practice of small firm architecture, which is just useful and helpful because architecture school teaches you nothing about running a business. And so (laughs) it's really nice to to talk details or talk information or just talk like uh, who, what does your contract say or, you know, Mm -hmm. things like that. So that's nice. And then building knowledge. And then I think I follow a high performance building uh, forum as well. And so, so those groups and the ability to do a group there Mm -hmm. or to do a group on LinkedIn is I think a really useful way to share knowledge and where Facebook and LinkedIn groups have an easier ability to share, like continue on after Instagram. Right. So Instagram's great in short snippets. Groups on Facebook and LinkedIn are interesting. It's hard, I think, um, as both small firm architects and as smaller builders and contractors, where you're wearing multiple hats to manage a lot of platforms. So Uh in some ways, I think that you have to decide what platform works best for either your knowledge, because you might Uh follow one to learn stuff and you might follow one to do marketing. Right. You know, right. That makes sense. So where do your clients hang out? And then where do you learn knowledge and information, which might, might be different, but I think not managing a ton of different social media or having someone that does some of like everybody should have a website now if you don't have a website it's just shocking to me Uh (laughs) you know and you have to have a presence in some social media whether you manage it or you have somebody who's part of your company that manages it for your company and that in some ways keeping your personal social media and your business social media somewhat separate is uh yeah, because smart. well it's it's not only smart i mean in theory people want to know you which is great yeah. but that if you're all on all the time like i said that then when you get on your social media on the weekend because you want to see your sister's kids you don't also want to get sucked into the work rabbit hole that you're then not working all weekend too. So that's part of the reason why I keep some of that separate is, you know, I want to see what my family is doing. I don't want to do work stuff. (laughs) So what's your thought on social media? Do you, do you guys have at 80 people, do you have a big social media team? Do you feel like it's even necessary as, as a big contracting firm? I mean, is your advertising all of the job site signs that are just all over the place? Is that like? Um, well, we we do we have a marketing team and they do some social media stuff and we've had we've had different approaches to it and different levels of commitment to it and different on different platforms at different times. Um, you know, this it's it's actually this is probably the aspect of our business that I know the least about, but our we we do not primarily market through social media or the web or, or advertising. Um, a substantial part of our work is referral and repeat. Um, and we do, you know, we do other stuff too, but that's a lot of it. So, um, I mean, we do have, there's a lot of pretty pictures on the internet. 
uh, and on the social platforms if you look up BOA. So there's some, you know, we do some, we get the chance to do some amazing, amazing stuff, like really jaw-dropping uh, work. So that's that's kind of fun. I actually like following the account and, and sometimes You're like I'm like, seeing all the cool stuff. I, yeah, I didn't get to, I didn't get to see that one when it was done. Um, but I, you know, I don't, I don't think we, my impression is we don't get a ton of leads directly out of that stuff. Yeah, I think m mostly the having a presence on it is just that if somebody wants to hire you, they can go to your website yeah. and they can look at some of the things and they can realize that you're a real actual company. And maybe it allows you to post on there what your core values are as a company. Mm -hmm. um, maybe not so much on the on the marketing and lead aspect of because I think a lot of people get to you by referrals or, you know, maybe they've watched your YouTube channel and they think that, you know, they're searching for builders in the area and they found that. Um, right. I mean, I think that's, that's how people find me. They heard the podcast or, you know, somebody who knows me or has worked with me. Um, well, we, we obviously have a much smaller community than, um, you know, in the DC area, you have mm -hmm. a pretty large, but you also have a lot more people to keep busy. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do you do much with publications? Like I, I've been a big magazine fan, but partially that's because I, I, uh, I like reading, um, but journal of like instruction and fine home building and, and uh, you know, a few of the remodeling and professional remodeler, those magazines have, I've gotten a lot out of those over the years. Yeah, I like to read a lot of them. I haven't written a lot of articles, I guess. I don't know. Um, I would. Um, we do stuff in the, we have a couple of local, more lo like Maine Home and Design, uh, mm -hmm. Decor Maine, um, Down oh. East Maine. So we have a bunch of like Maine based magazines, um, which you know, we'll, we'll write about, uh, the design build collaborative that I have that we built our five lot solar subdivision. Um, they wrote about that. Um, I think the hard part for me <laughs> is, um, I love magazines until they become a stack on my desk. That's become, right. you know, and so how do you decide what, what you're going to read next? And am I more likely to read, you know, if Green Building Advisor sends me an email with a link to five articles, mm -hmm. I feel like I'm more likely to read that than the magazine only because it comes in and it ends up on a surface somewhere and I have the best of intentions and I need to get better about actually reading them. Funny. I don't know too, um, in the environmental world how i feel about paper <laughs> you know like yeah. the stacks of magazines i i say that i don't know um you know when you're redlining a drawing set it's easier if it's printed out in front of you or, or now i have an ipad which is kind of the same thing but it's hard to really read and understand and look at a drawing set on the computer screen in front of you versus like it being right you know, printed out. And so there's, there's pros and cons, I think, to magazines and publications and what they provide um, as to who their audience is as far as who reads the online stuff and who reads the 
the printed marketing yeah. um, or not marketing, but printed articles. So mm -hmm. I like to read the articles. It has to be curated to what I'm really interested in, I guess. Mm. <laughs> and I don't like busy magazines. So um, that has been a problem, I think, in I get that ads sell magazines. You know, that's how, what keeps them in business. And I uh. fully appreciate that. But if there are like six ads on a page and like it mixed into the article, I find that visually distracting. And maybe that's because I'm a visual learner more so mm. than an auditory learner. So if I, oh. if I find it visually distracting, I just kind of keep going. So my favorite magazines have like full sections of article content and then other pages that have ads on them that are like half a page ads. So there's never really more than two ads on a page so that when I flip to it, I actually see what the ad is saying to hmm. me, but that could just be a personal, <laughs> a personal thing. Who knows? I don't know. So, yeah. but, um, any other resources, trainings, things that you really recommend to either builders or other building science people? Well, <clears throat> I know, I mean, there's a bunch of, um, uh, there's a bunch of websites that I've found really helpful. Yeah. Uh, and I guess kind of, um, you know, there's JLC online, green building advisor, fine home building pro trade craft. I spent a lot of time on building green, uh, back in the day. I actually even ordered environmental building news, like the entire collection and read the entire thing at one point. Um, so I don't know. Those are all good. Uh, I'm not sure we really talk much about those. Um, and then I've, there are a few, you know, a few, a few books that are really terrific. Um, one of them, I want to give a shout out to John Straub. Yeah. <clears throat> that you don't have to, you can skim this book, but just for having a list of all the key building science uh, concepts. It's yeah. amazing, amazing book. Yeah. Um, would you say at what level is that book? Is that book a, I know nothing about building science. Is that book a, I understand basic building science concepts and I want to learn more. Or is that a, I'm a building science nerd and I'm going to read this book to get really deep level into it. Uh, I, I think it can be any level. Okay. I don't think it's an easy read if you're new to the game. Yeah. But it's a textbook, right? It's designed for students who might not know a ton about buildings yet. And like I said, I, <clears throat> I'm sure whatever level you come into it from, you'll learn stuff. Whether it'll keep yeah. your attention might be another story. <laughs> um, and I, I, you know, John get, gets into the math on everything um, so that you could do the math if you wanted to. And I, I'll usually start looking through the formulas. And then if if it's not clicking in 20 seconds, I've I skip the formulas and go to the next concept. So <laughs> that's, you know, whatever level that is, that's the level I'm reading it at. Yeah. Um, so that's a good and one. I, I only ask that because um, I 
was teaching building science to another architect and I started her with the uh, residential energy by Krieger and Dorsey. I don't know oh, if yeah, you've read yeah. that one. Oh, what a great book. Yeah, Which yeah. is a great, like, you know nothing about building science, right. but you might know something about architecture or whatever. And it was a really good intro. Um, um, and Insulate and Weather Eyes, if you've mm -hmm. ever read that by, by Taunton, which is a great kind of combo to it because it uses a lot of visuals for existing buildings on the kind of like why you wouldn't do this like oh look at this dirty fiberglass and like this hole and this chimney right. and so I like those two books as like a basic building science 101 gotcha. but then I want to have like a place to go like what's next what's deep level what's without being um you know some of them are such a deep dive that if you don't yeah. know if you don't know a lot about it, it can be hard. And um, so, uh, so. I think that's fair. It's been a while since I've been in those shoes, unfortunately. Yeah, I know. And you don't remember, I, I no. teach a building science class. You don't remember what you didn't know once you know it. And so it's hard to sometimes teach it because yeah. you're like, you're going along and you you think that the terms and everything that you're using are like make sense and it's like no wait hold that's on that's why i love listening to christine when she was on bs and beer i mean she, as she said she just learned that it's it's never the wrong place to start is at the beginning yeah that's always the right place to start and distill it down to the main principles and start mm -hmm. from there and like reading the code book, her recommendation was to start on buildingscience.com and just start reading through. Yeah. Oh, e that's each one of the so much worse than that. Just read, just read one, read one a day for, yep. you know, uh, until you've read through all of them yep. and you'll pick up something. And then if you go back to the beginning, you might now know more than you did when you first started. And some of the stuff that didn't make sense the first time around kind of yep. clicks. So she's terrific and, uh, and she is and, terrific. <laughs> well, I have to move on, I think. Yeah, no, that's okay. I have to go prepare for BS and beer tonight. Oh, yeah, I, yeah. I appreciate you taking your time out of your busy day to talk to me on the podcast. I uh, enjoyed it very much. So thank Ho you. Hopefully someone will get something useful out of this. Uh, uh, that was fun. Really nice to get to spend some time with you. Uh, I'm sure they will. And I will connect them to all the resources that you mentioned too, because you know, your YouTube channel and some of the stuff that you've put online could be really helpful for some of the other builders out there. So thank you for sharing thank all you. of that. Thanks for tuning in to the E3 podcast. I hope you guys have been enjoying these episodes as much as I have. I've had some really interesting guests, a lot of great professionals in the building science and architecture and building realm. So thank you to all the guests that have been on. If you're enjoying the podcast, like and share on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or leave me a comment on the website. And if there's somebody you'd like to hear from or you'd like me to have on the podcast, send me an email, emily at matramarch.com. Otherwise, have a fantastic weekend and we'll see you again next week.